Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, January 23rd, and welcome to Pitcher Week. This is the first of four pitcher-centric episodes that we're going to have in the feed this week. We're going to break down all things starting pitchers over the next three episodes, and then at the end of the week, we will have a relief pitcher breakdown for the upcoming season. It's the best week of the year, and it's kicking off our position preview series for 2023. That's right. In some sort of multiverse, mind-bending way, we've recorded a lot of that uh, that content that has to, yet to come, but we will kick it off with the best, the pitchers, and that's, uh, you know, tied to my pitcher rankings that, that came out last week, but there is news in this space in the effort to improve the model. We have taken uh, Stuff Plus and we've done a couple things to it. We've trained it on 2022 data. Uh, which is always better when it's trained against more data. We have separated it into three models, one fastball model, one breaking ball model, and one off-speed model, and that has improved uh, our error, our standard error, when we look at how well it can project the future. And uh, so we have those numbers behind the scenes. We'll hear those. We're working towards projections with Jordan Rosenblum, so that's going on. Uh, That's still to come. Uh, But we're also drafting, so we're bringing in ADP, and we're bringing in sort of more standard numbers that you guys recognize. And we're trying to today look at what the top 20 or so. Yeah, we figured top 20, top 25, probably going to get through that pick 100 mark. So just for anyone who's new to our show, what we do for our position preview series, we take a look at NFBC ADP because NFBC leagues are paid drafts that have been happening all winter. It's a sharp group of players that actually have put something into their drafts good sample to you know decently like there's always drafts going on so it's a good sample yeah we're looking at january specifically so we're kind of lopping off the very very early drafts that happened in october november and december eventually you know the espn adp the yahoo adp other sites adp will look different in part also because the players are different the league parameters are different and the draft room has different sorting orders right so one thing that people probably don't think a lot about is whatever order that a site provider uses to put players in does influence when players are taken. Whether you like it or not, it's going to lead some people in the room or many people in the room to go one direction versus another. So anyway, we use the NFBC ADP around here for those reasons. And even even if like even if it's not just a straight bias for where like, oh, these players are appearing at the top of the queue and so therefore you know, I will be biased to pick one of these players. I'd rather not just scroll down a bunch for the player, you know. Even if you do the scrolling down and you scroll down and you pick up the players, you should consider ADP because there's, even if you're ranking, say, you should take this guy at 100 and everybody else is taking him at 150, you're going to get more value out of your own rankings if you take that guy at 125. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't spend all the way up to where exactly you have him. Um, and so ADP is always going to be, you know, a valuable piece of information for how you decide when you want to take a player. Yeah, I think that's a really important consideration for it. So don't necessarily use it as your one and only guide for you know what to do on draft day, but be very aware of it and understand how you can take advantage of what the room is likely to do versus what you actually want to do with your roster builds. We were talking off air a little bit about this. And, you know, I think last year I made some mistakes in my rankings just because 
the way that I did it was sort by projections and then use my model to kind of push guys up and push guys down. And that was that was pretty much it. I mean, there was some injury percentage stuff that I did. Uh, I took a look at ADP, but I didn't put ADP in as one of the pieces of information in my rankings when I was building. And what happened was, you know, I put somebody like a Devin Smelter ahead of Cal Quantrill. I had my reasons. The model hated Cal Quantrill. Um, you know, I thought Smelter might might be a, a sixth starter and Quantrill be a fifth starter. And so, you know, there's a there's a like a fine line there when you're kind of trying to judge those guys. Um, I think it was a mistake. It was a mistake. I can admit it. And it's a mistake that ADP would have helped me realize because now that I put ADP in, I can easily see which guys I have to defend, Mm -hmm. you know? And if I had seen that Smeltzer had like 150 points of ADP lower than Cal Quantrill, I'd be like, well, I really have to defend that guy. Do I really love that guy? And then I would have been like, well, he's a six or seven starter and this, and maybe the model's not capturing something. It doesn't throw hard. You know what I mean? So I would have, I would have argued him down. So this year, hopefully, I avoid some pratfalls like that by just taking into consider ADP and being like, if I like a guy and the ADP is really different than the guys around him, then I should be prepared to defend it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. Let's dive in. Let's start at the top of the board. It's a little different if you look at just all players in terms of their ADP. Normally in the NFBC, you're going to see two to three starting pitchers with clear first round ADPs. So far this draft season... The elite of the elite pitchers are going just outside the first round in terms of ADP. Sometimes they do creep in there. Most, I think most drafts, like, yeah, they go at the turn. They go right at that turn, right? You're at the end. You're like, well, I'm going to get one. I'm going to take a hitter and a pitcher, and I'm going to get one of Corbin Burns and Garrett Cole, and then the hitter I like, and then I'm going to just build whatever I can get based on who falls to me at the next couple of turns. Burns mm-hmm. and Cole have been up in this range for a couple of seasons. Sandy Alcantara, new to this range. And then Jacob deGrom is the fourth pitcher sort of in this group consistently in the first two rounds. And more recently, deGrom has been making a move to where he is starting to go closer to the end of round one, beginning of round two. So I think it's a, a broader question of what do you prefer to do this year, given the overall shape of the draft board? Do you feel like it's necessary to get one of these guys if you have a later first round draft order position or do you feel like the position is is deep enough and the way people are handling it is leaving you plenty of potential aces in the round three round four buckets um i i'd love the cole or burns pick i I can get behind that Uh, my personal rankings have uh, strider uh, right there with degrom um and uh and sandy actually a little bit lower than consensus um those three i think have a fair amount of risk associated with them that i don't see necessarily associated with colin burns in terms of jake DeGrom's health sandy alcantara it's not it's not so much a risk of how well he'll do i think it's a, just a risk that he has a low strikeout rate the shift rules are changing um and any small injury uh, could, I think, do more damage to him than to somebody else. For example, uh, last year, despite how many innings he pitched uh, most in baseball, there were seven guys who struck out more guys than him just by raw strikeouts. And uh, so what if you give Sandy Alcantara 170 innings last year like Kevin Gossman had, right? Kevin Gossman had 205 strikeouts in 175 innings. If Sandy Alcantara has 175 innings, he might have 160 strikeouts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 
then where does he rank with 160 strikeouts? Because the you know the best sort of run suppression 160 strikeout guy that I've got is maybe Zach Wheeler. And so I have Sandy ahead of Zach Wheeler because, you know, he probably should pitch more innings than Zach Wheeler. But that should drag Sandy down out of the top, out of an easy, like, if you're going to have a top three, I don't have a, I don't have a third guy. I think there's a top two. And then the next three, I'd rather sort of wait, you know, third, they, I start thinking third round. What can I get in the third round? You know what I mean? Yeah. And as far as Burns and Cole go, like I, I don't see any warts either. Um, if you're getting my choice of the two, I'm taking Burns ahead of Cole. The park is still easier for Burns to deal with. Uh, I think that's kind of borne out a little bit just in what you've seen over the last two seasons combined. Corbin Burns, a .73 homers per nine. Garrett Cole, 1.34 homers per nine. That's that's a big deal, I think. And that's not going away for Cole either. It seems like it's been here ever since enforcement. I don't think it's going away. But... Uh, there's another added wrinkle that's kind of interesting. Jeff Zimmerman's injury percentiles mm. uh, has Corbin Burns in the fifth percentile for injuries and Garrett Cole in the 70th. Now, 70th for a veteran I, is not necessarily a red flag, more like a yellowish you know, uh, flag, but five percentile is super, super dark green. Uh, so that was enough for me to kind of uh, put, nudge him ahead of Cole. All right. So I'm with you on Sandy, by the way. Good pitcher, has thrown more innings than anybody in baseball over the last two seasons combined, but with that low K rate, there's just a little bit too much risk if he does get hurt. Team context, still still not great. Park context, fine, but I think he's more of a back-of-the-top-ten sort of guy, and with that sort of ranking, I might not have him anywhere this year, and I may have to just deal with that. DeGrom, I think, is the most complicated player in the entire player pool because if you run the auction calculator, you run projections, and you take what they spit out for innings, for what they are and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to believe I'm going to believe in 168 innings for Jacob deGrom. He's going to pop as the number one pitcher based on mm-hmm. what most calculators are going to do. It just comes back to with multiple, do you believe that much? multiple IL stints that much? with yeah. arm stuff? I'm torn on this one. I, I think the case you want for, an injury percentile on him. It's 93rd, which I'm, I'm even surprised it's not higher. <laughs> yeah. But the reason you would consider taking him is that, even with a lower projection, 168 innings is lower than the projection you'll find on Burns, on Cole, on Sandy. 230 strikeouts from DeGrom. It's 30 more than Sandy Alcantara's projected for by the bat. And that's with Sandy getting projected for 43 more innings. That's a big, big difference, right? And you're getting the best ratios of any starting pitcher by far. So it just comes down to how many lost innings are enough to sink you at a potential second round valuation, even if it's not early second round. If he's, if you're in a room where he slides to the back of round two, you might think about it. We talked about this a little bit on a recent episode. It comes down to your risk tolerance, right? If you're trying to play in an NFBC overall contest, you're playing in something with a big, big field where you need a lot of things to go right to make a run at the top overall prize. Those scenarios are probably the ones where you can be rewarded the most for DeGrom. But at the same time, you can punish your own floor quite a bit if the injury stuff goes sideways. I'm a little more in than out if it's late second round. For now, I'm still hesitating to go in and get DeGrom at the 1-2 turn, around that pick 15, pick 16 range where some people are going to push him. I'm still holding back on that. Same as last year. I just want to see him at spring training. I want to see that he's totally healthy, that he has the same velo. I know he got the big contract from the Rangers. 
I don't think that actually lowers the risk that much. I think that's just what the market commanded that a pitcher this good would get because even if he misses a year of that contract because of Tommy John or some other big injury, he can return the value of the entire deal in four seasons. He's capable of doing that. He's just the ultimate high-risk, high-reward sort of player, and I find it really hard for me to play that way in my highest-stakes leagues. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want uh, sure things. Uh, you know, the one thing that is difficult is that we've talked a little bit in the other to come podcasts about how the rounds work, and um, you know, I like I don't like living in uh, picks twenty five through thirty, basically the back end uh, of the first round, the back end of the second round. So it means you took a, a first round pick in the first five. And in the back end of the second round, you'll be lucky to be looking at Paul Goldschmidt and Francisco Lindor, as well as uh, you know basically Degrom, Strider, and Woodruff, right by ADP. And uh, to me, uh, as much as I, I and I, I will make the case for Woodruff in a second. As much as I love Woodruff and and Nola's there too, so there's those four guys. Um, I'm not leaping out of my pants to take Sandy Alcantara there, who's in that group, I guess, at 28, um, ahead of those guys. I'd rather take Goldschmidt, I think. You know, I think that would make sense. Or Lindor. Both guys who are going to hit for power, hit for average, hit for speed uh, on good teams and uh, play a position. You know what I mean? Um, I would take those guys because I know it's got to be a lock that one of those guys is coming back to me. And if it's Woodruff, or Nola, I'm cool with that. I don't think I need to jump. If if even if I have I have Strider as a third ranked pitcher, I'm willing to let that ride because I don't believe there's really a top three. I believe there's a top two. And if I come back and I get Strider in the in the third, happy with that too. So it is a it is a something that you can do. And I think you can honestly expand that use case to anywhere in the third round. You know what I mean? I think you can you cannot take a starting pitcher in the second if the Barnes or Cole are not there for you. I think you cannot take a pitcher, a starting pitcher in the second because a good one will get back to you in the third. Yeah, I mean, look at the difference here. We're going to call it ADP tier 1.5 because there's not much that separates these guys. Spencer Strider goes here. If you, if you told me Spencer Strider or Brandon Woodruff is going to move up and Sandy because of the aforementioned low K rate, is going to come down a little bit. That wouldn't surprise me at all. If that happens between now uh, and the the end part of I draft season, I think Degrom will go up, dude. I think healthy Degrom always goes up the board every time. I think just every spring, you know, Degrom he just goes up every spring because our hope, you know, bubbles. You know, our hope springs eternal. You know, this group: Strider, Woodruff, Aaron Nola, Shane McClanahan, Dylan Cease, Justin Verlander, Carlos Rodon, Max Scherzer. Zach Wheeler and Julio Rios going a little later. This is basically the round three, round four combo. So it stretches out over a pretty big range. If I were going to push one of these guys up, I would push up Brandon Woodruff over Strider. I think it's because the arsenal is a little bit deeper. We've seen it over a longer period of time. I understand why people like Strider. It sounds like if you had the choice, though, with Strider being third in your rankings, Strider is your guy that you would nudge up. Or if we were in you know, an auction scenario where it's just dollar for dollar, go get your guys you're more likely to put the extra dollar on Strider than you are on the rest of this group. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to reference this a couple times, but it helps my understanding of the relationship between uh, quantity of innings and quality of innings. 
here's a real interesting sort that you can do that I think kind of brings it into focus. You can go over to Fangraphs and just sort by raw strikeouts. It's boring. I know. It seems like, duh, the ones who play more, but it's not that. So, for example, Spencer Strider, 131 and two-thirds innings, had 202 strikeouts last year. That ranks ahead of people who threw 200 innings. Mm-hmm. He had more strikeouts than Shane Bieber and Framber Valdez and Merrill Kelly, who all had 200 innings. Uh, Miles Michaelis. I mean, these are obvious names, and they're obviously at different ends of the spectrum of the strikeout spectrum, but it helps me sort of understand that, like, if Spencer Strider throws 160 innings this year, and that's more likely, I think, than DeGrom. I'm playing that game, right? If 160 innings. That seems more likely than DeGrom throwing 160. Spencer Strider's a young guy. He hasn't really had... He had Tommy John once, but he hasn't had, like, a string of injuries. So if he gets to 160 innings, I think he wins the Cy Young. I think he he has, like, 240 strikeouts and wins the Cy Young. You know who had 240 strikeouts last year? Burns and Cole. (laughs) You've made a convincing case. The other question I'd have with Strider is, he was amazing last year with basically two pitches. Four seamer slider. Yeah, that's how he did it. I've got a piece. I've got a piece coming about that. And and his his perspective is just if I have the two best pitches, it doesn't matter. Why should I throw this third other pitch? You know, and um, you know, I, I just I find that interesting. It's an interesting debate that people, really smart people. Uh, we talked about how James Click uh, and the founder uh, Gary Huckabee, the founder of Baseball Prospectus, didn't agree on whether a pitcher, starting pitcher needed three pitches to, to start. And I think Strider's right in the, in the middle of it. And the, we did a whole back and forth. And one of the things I said was, you're mostly hard up top and, and slider down low, right? That's like the mostly, you're, that's, that's where your pitches play the best. What happens if somebody just says, I'm spitting on everything slow and I'm targeting high and hard? Don't you think they can start to hit your fastball? And he goes, I can see that happening. And then I just start throwing some low fastballs. Because if they're spitting on everything low, they're going to take it, and then I get some take strikes. Now I got to make them swing at things that are low. If I got to make them swing the things that are low, here comes the slider. You know? Right. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, for me, the fact that Strider has above average location numbers is just as important as the stuff plus. Because we've seen Matt Brash come up with similar strikeout rates and similar stuff numbers to Strider and been like, ooh, Matt Brash. And I was guilty of just falling for Matt Brash because it was nasty, drippy stuff. And his location numbers were not good. And that's what happens is people start to spit on the slider because it's not in the zone that much. And then he can't command his fastball and it's not as good as Spencer Strider's fastball. And, you know, you are where we are now. But I don't think Spencer Strider is Matt Brash. And so... So that's why I'm pushing him to where I am. He's gonna have an he's gonna have a bonkers strikeout rate. I think he's gonna have great numbers. Then this year, where you know allowing contact is is a no bueno, he's gonna be the one who says, "I don't care. Nobody hits it over there where the shift is because nobody hits it." So you know, like I I think I would take Strider over over Woodruff. Um, and, and then Woodruff did have that weird Reynolds syndrome. Yeah, which I was like. I was panicking about about that when it when it happened, and then he just came back a couple weeks later and was like, "No, I'm cool." 
<laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> the symptoms are really similar to thoracic outlet, and thoracic outlet is such a, a long-term injury if a pitcher yeah, actually has awful. that going on. So it is worth monitoring to see if there's anything else going on with Woodruff. It's a good point to bring that up because I think it's something that since he got over it reasonably quickly, I was pretty quick to just bury it, and it's it's a possible longer-term thing that he has to stay on top of. And he pitches in a lot of colder environments, especially early in the season, right? I mean, that's just part of being in the Central. You're going to go on the road to Chicago. I think they open. The Brewers open at Wrigley again this year. That's not exactly the ideal conditions for someone kind of fighting those symptoms. So it's a good point. I don't want to, uh, I also want to make the pitch for Woodruff. Sure. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I actually think I'll have a lot of Woodruff. I think he's a great pitcher because I think Strider is going to go, is going to have helium and is going to be basically an end of the second round pitch uh, uh, guy with DeGrom. I think DeGrom and Strider will separate themselves into second round starting pitchers. And with me kind of uh, being okay with waiting till the third round, I think Woodruff will like easily be the the, the best uh, pitcher available in the third round. And my my uh, my case for him is just uh, my pitch is this uh, four seam fastball one two and three stuff plus changeup one twenty stuff plus sinker one thirteen stuff plus slider one oh four stuff plus curveball ninety nine stuff plus there are very few people that have one fastball that's above average by stuff plus he has two uh, in terms of location plus. Forcing fastball 108, changeup 109, sinker 105, slider 104, curveball 108. So he is one of those kind of, they're very rare, but he's like a Tyler Anderson with Tyler Glasnow stuff. That works. Like maybe not quite full on Tyler Glasnow stuff, but my, my point is he's one of these guys that has command of five pitches and can, and can get you just on like, I, you don't know what pitch is coming, and then also has excellent stuff on all those pitches. And there, there are very few people, uh, you know, at the top of the ranks that have as good a location as, like, for example, Aaron Nola has better location numbers, but he doesn't have the stuff at Brandon Woodruff. Yeah, uh, Kevin Gossman and Justin Verlander uh, have similar uh, locations, and uh, and and stuff. They're just a little bit older. But that, those are those are reasons why I have those three pitchers up pretty high. Yeah, I think the ballpark for me has been something that's always maybe a, a little bit more careful with Aaron Nola in this range. Even though the skills look stable, we see a lot of fluctuation with his ERA. His bad years are surprisingly bad, which I don't I don't think the the magnitude of that is fully explained by the ballpark. I do think maybe there's some questions about the defense behind him, and that can become more important oh, with the new rules yeah. as well. Yeah, you don't. He doesn't have that safety blanket of this of the of the uh, of the shift. You know, as a, in a, in comparison, Nola uh, does have a knuckle curve cutter, uh, sinker, and fastball that all uh, rate above average. Um, but uh, he's he's very similar to Woodruff, and I have him Woodruff sixth, Nola seventh. Um, but in terms of the order of those pitches, uh, his Knuckle curve and cutter have better stuff plus than his sinker and his four seamer. Whereas uh, Banner Woodruff's best pitch is his four seam fastball, I believe. That's kind of fun, you know. I think that's I think that's a and that's another thing. I'm, I'm waiting for to to really say this until Jordan Rosenblum's uh, projections come out. 
But I have a feeling that Fastball Stuff Plus is a good source of aging. The better your Fastball Stuff is, the longer you're going to age. Yeah, I would suspect that for some of the older, still great pitchers that we see, Justin Verlander, cough, cough, that you would have a very good fastball. You would have had a very good fastball for most of his career. Maybe now we're finally starting to see some actual decay, but everything else yeah, is still pretty good. Why has Justin Verlander been so good for so long? Because he, he had a great fastball. Everything, Yes, he has these other good pitches too, but like... If he didn't have the fastball, he'd have to start hiding it. Mm-hmm. And he'd have to start becoming more of what you see these older pitches of throwing thrones of junk and sneaking the fastball by. Justin Verlander's not sneaking the fastball by. No, no, he is not. One of the tougher players for me in the early part of drafts is Shane McClanahan, not because I have any questions about the skills, but I think it's a little bit of the Jacob deGrom problem. It's not as extreme as far as the recent time missed, but we did see... Time on the IL last year for Shane McClanahan, 166 in the third innings, ended up being the final tally. Just under 200 Ks, excellent ratios. Are we comfortable projecting another step forward volume-wise for McClanahan, or do you think there's still some kid gloves concerns here just to keep his arm healthy? It did not look good. Do you remember that? It did not look good. He was like, they had video of it where he's like throwing in the bullpen before a game, and he like touches his shoulder and he's out. He just like walks off. Yeah. And I don't know, that was, that seemed, I don't know, I, maybe that's how it always happens, but like for some reason having the video, I was just like, ooh, <laughs> that was very definitive. That wasn't like maybe, it was like he walked off the mound, so. He got back pretty quick though. I thought he'd be out for more than a month and he was back within about and three how weeks. how bad is an impingement? It's, that's what they call it, an impingement, right? Mm-hmm. And those Strange. last Those last four starts that he made in the regular season were five innings, four innings, five innings, and five innings. The Ks were five, three, two, and two. So it wasn't the same McClanahan at the end of the year that we saw for the months prior. That, I think, adds that little extra bit of risk that it's like I want to believe what I see in terms of how filthy he is when everything is is good health-wise, but I don't know. If if I'm going to sit here and say DeGrom has to fall to just the right spot and then he has to prove this spring that everything is okay, I think... I would need to see McClanahan throwing bullets again this spring too. Yeah, and I and I uh, I wonder uh, if I don't know. Does this make you feel better? His fastball stuff plus was was decent when he came back. Uh, what really hurt him in the second half and in his return from injury was his slider stuff plus fell off. Uh, early in the season, he was putting up 105s to 140s on the slider. Late in the season, he had one, two, three, four, five six appearances uh, with sub 100 stuff plus on a slider. So does that make you feel better or worse? Mm. I mean, I'm glad that the fastball stuff plus was there. I'm glad that the Velo was, was pretty much there. Probably a little better than, than having no information. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, we also, when we reran the model, uh, he went from a 118 stuff plus to 112. Uh, he was one. He's the biggest loser in my uh, top. Wow, thirty. Ooh, that's a pretty big drop. Um, you know, whereas you know some guys around him went up. Degrom went up amazingly. Woodruff went up. Nola went up. Uh, and, and the new model liked his fastballs a little better, uh, which is interesting because we grouped. We had like separate models basically for the fastball and the other ones. So. Yeah, I, I I I have a down arrow on my my McClanahan ranking. I started at some point with him like three four, you know, 
Um, right now I have him ninth. And uh, I think what I start to run into, though, is would you rather have an old man or Shane McClanahan? Yeah, I think that's been reflected in where I've got him. I've got him fifth among starting pitchers as of right now. And it's DeGrom McClanahan being stuck together as two guys that I think are just awesome if they're healthy. And then Max Scherzer, mm. the old guy, and then Strider's well, right see, up I have him ahead two. of Max Scherzer, but I have Max Scherzer 10th. Yeah, so I have a I have a Scherzer, Gossman, Verlander, Rodon, uh, foursome where, you know, injury percentiles are pretty high. Uh, Verlander has a 98th percent uh, injury percentile. Glass now is a 98. Rodon is a 90. Um, and then with Gossman, just, just a little bit of like, it hasn't always looked great. You know, he's still kind of a two-pitch guy. Yeah. I, I Here's the question I have for you with the injury risk also within this group is Carlos Rodon has been reasonably healthy the last two seasons, got a great contract from the Yankees. Again, very happy for him. Given that it's been shoulder and elbow in the past, he scares me even more than DeGrom. The only thing that I like better about Carlos Rodon is that you can get him at the 3-4 turn. You get him in the after pick 40 to pick 50 batters first. You could have two hitters and come back and you could get a guy that pitches like a top three to top five starter. I I don't dispute that he has that. I think he just carries that elevated risk. So just quantifying it. I think you mentioned DeGrom's injury risk was something in the the 90th percentile range. 93rd, yeah. How high is Rodon on that same measure? 90. So just just close to Degrom, a little bit be below, probably due to the age, yeah, and just raw numbers of days on the IL in the last couple of years. I mean, Degrom is through the roof. Yeah. So he, as much as I can see it from a projection standpoint, and you get a, a better value on Rodon than Degrom, I think he's a guy that I'm kind of shying away from. I know Scherzer has missed his share of time. People are saying, well, you got Scherzer and inside your top ten, firmly inside your top ten, you'll take him, and he's older. Yeah, because he hasn't had that same level of a massive shoulder or elbow injury in any recent year, right? It's not it's not this devastating like injury the drip, in the recent drip, drip track of, of back, you know, back and hamstring and just old man injuries, right? Yeah, and I think that's more typical. Plus this and, in raw numbers, 179, 145 is not too bad. Well, it's still pretty good workload-wise, so maybe you're projecting another... 160 type innings that's kind of where the strider innings numbers are and i think scherzer can miss a lot of bats he won't miss as many as strider if you give them an equal number of innings but there's a chance that scherzer gives you more innings than strider and that's that for me is like why i would choose scherzer over strider if the prices were equal i actually think the strikeout ceiling for scherzer because of innings is just as high if not higher it's not easy (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, uh, this this sort of ten to fifteen is is where I get a little queasy, and I I don't think I'm gonna have a lot of uh, of shares there. At least with Shane McClanahan, I can convince myself I got a young stud, and there's the possibility of 180 innings, you know, with you know 230 type strike, you know, like that's I can I can dream that up. I don't know that I can dream that up for Scherzer and Verlander where I just more likely that there's gonna be some maintenance IL stints, some you know, kind of my back is barking moments and, uh, and maybe even just some uh, management of workload where the Mets are like, we're going to the postseason and, uh, we want these guys healthy for the postseason. So we're going to, you know, give them two weeks off in August 
um, when you're like, well, I need those innings. So I just don't know if I believe the innings from all of those. Rodon comes with a little bit of performance risk going to that park. It's so terrible, but at least he's a left-handed power pitcher that strikes people out. So not only is he not going to allow that many balls in play for the shift and for that ballpark, but he's also probably going to suppress, you know, a lot of, like, you know, left-handers aren't going to go yard off him that much. You know, what is, <laughs> I never do, I never, it's funny when I look up a split, I never look up, but I, I did just say this and I just, you know, normally I just assume that somebody like Radon would just be murder on lefties. 238 Woba against them last year. That's uh, they good. had a 260 slugging lefties did last year. <laughs> and for his career, it's a 325 slugging. So like, yeah, he's pretty good against lefties, so. Uh, I think uh, I think he he'll be fine in that ballpark. It's just more of an injury concern. So you know, but comparing injury concerns is when I think um, we sound our worst. Oh, <laughs> like we're God. not we're not it's... doctors, and like we're just like trying to fumble around in the dark, and we're just trying to trying to help people. But you know, full 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 like disclosure. Like I'm not a doctor, uh, and I don't even play know. one on the radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh and so I, I try my best to sort of figure this out uh i do think that we generally think um elbow elbows is concerning but shoulder is most concerning uh, backs can be concerning for the older guys uh, you know the, that sort of thing tyler glass now uh is a guy that i have 14th and i think it's fair to put him in that group as like what are the innings going to look like i don't know um and he has a 98th, uh, you know, percentile injury risk. I, I get it. I understand why. Uh, this the one thing that's great about him versus like you know Noah Syndergaard came back and pitched a couple innings. You know when he after his Tommy John, we knew right away that those that he was not the pitcher he used to be. The the velo wasn't there. The stuff he didn't even throw a breaking ball. You know, so we kind of had a we had a, a sense of where he'd be the next year. And this last year it was the same thing. He threw 94. You know, his stuff wasn't as good. Tyler Glasnow came out last year and blew the doors off people's hinges. I mean, just in terms of the the stuff plus numbers, they're through the roof. And they look like, you know, he'd be basically right there with Felix Bautista because he was doing it in shorter stints and like, you know, he's able to air it out. But uh, uh, it all looked good is what I'm saying. And the thing that worries me less about Glasnow compared to some of the other guys is uh, uh, Jeff Zimmerman had these findings about Tommy John Honeymoons. And generally, if you come back to pitch and you make it all the way back and you have pitched, you have at least another sort of 250 to 300 innings before you're going to have another Tommy John if in worst case scenario, right? So like there's this kind of 300 inning, you know, uh, uh, Tommy John honeymoon, uh, as, as, as Zimmerman puts it. Like a warranty for the pitcher. Warranty. Like, oh, you're good for about <laughs> 300 more innings. And then maybe, yeah, maybe we'll and- see you again. Hopefully we don't. And he has a bitty, really big carrot, which is, you know, he's a total free agent after next season. And if he can put together 300, 350 innings over the next two seasons, that payday, the more he can, every inning he gets over 300 over the next two seasons is worth like $10 million, I bet. Yeah, right. I mean, think about the money Carlos Rodon just got. Glass now should be able to top that, not only because it's going to be two years into the future, but also 
even with Tommy John, Glasnow's injury history is not as scary as Rodon's was prior to as what Rodon As long as he comes did. back and does what Rodon does, it, you know, like has mm-hmm. the healthy season. You know? He's capable of it. So he has a lot running on the line, and I think, he, I think he'll do it. I think he'll put, if he puts together 140, 150 innings this year, you know, think back to what I was saying about sorting by strikeouts. If he can do 150 innings, uh, there's another name that I don't want to, speak out of turn on the rundown but uh, christian javier was 14th in strikeouts last year in 148 innings uh, tyler glass now can do that right that's the appeal and i think glass now being available at least for now i think he's going to move up quite a bit another guy that once he's out there this spring and he's throwing and everything looks good he's going to jump up a few rounds the most competitive rooms out there could easily make him someone that fits into the group that we're talking about right now I wouldn't be surprised at all if we we get to the end of March and Tyler. Yeah, because he's not there by ADP, right? I, I I have him 14th by my rankings, but he's not there by ADP. I think plenty of people are going to be on board with that. So this is a great time to draft Glass now. If you're doing early drafts and he's someone that you would expect to see at least near the back part of the group we're talking about right now, as we move a little further into the season, the Dylan Cease. Uh, lack of love between the two of us is probably for the same reason. For me, it's just the walks. I I worry that the walks can come back to bite him, lower the ratios in a way where he struggles to return enough value here. The Ks are going to be there. It's a bit like, it's a, I don't know, more extreme. Robbie Ray in his early career was a more extreme example of Dylan Cease. I think Cease is a, a little more, a little more steady with his command than early career Robbie Ray. Blake Snell is probably a good example, right? We've seen Blake Snell over the years as a guy with really good stuff, but that high walk rate, when it's good, Cy Young level. When it's not good, SP4. And then you paid a fringe like SP1 sort of price to get it. So for me, Dylan Cease is a guy that the room always likes more than I do. And much like Sandy in the little tier before this, probably a guy that I miss out on completely. Yeah, I mean, he helped me to that points record in AL Labor last year. You know, him and McClanahan were my were my horses, uh, and I and I thank him for that. But the reason he was cheap uh, before is still the reason I would want to get him cheap again, and that's that's not going to happen this year. He's it's the walks. Uh, you know, another way of saying it is uh, location plus. He's the uh, the only uh, player. Uh, I mean, I guess Dil- uh, Shohei Otani counts, but Shohei Otani's location plus was better. But he's the only player. Uh, that I have in my top 25 uh, with a, a location plus that low. Uh, so it's, you know, one thing that I like to do with the conditional formatting is just give me give me a bunch of greens and reds so that the reds stick out. And it's really the only red in my top 25. And that's going to push you down. And why do I say top 25? Because there's a couple reds that happen at 25 and 26 uh, in Shane Bieber and Max Fried's uh stuff plus uh which they're easily the worst uh, stuff plus in my top 30 um and so you know i tried to use the adp and 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 the projected no- amounts to to not push someone who got too far down so i'm not going to push dylan cease like way far down but uh it, you know that red flag is the ballast that pulls him below uh i have him below someone like sorry to say it again christian javier and Christian Javier has similar stuff. Uh, he has a smaller arsenal, um, but he has slightly better than league average uh, uh, location. That's why pitching plus is still a column that I have. I don't. I try not to hew only to stuff plus. Christian Javier's pitching plus is better than Dylan Cease's. 
Um, and that considers platoon splits, that considers command of different pitch types, it considers the size of your arsenal, and it says Javier is better than C. So I'm, I'm going to go with that because it's just, it is sometimes worrisome to see like a 3 8 walks per nine. You're talking, you're going to, that's going to be your ace. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's a little bit worrisome. There's no other uh, person we're talking about that could be your first starting pitcher uh, that's going to have a walk rate around four. Uh, he has the first career is 402. Yeah, looking at the, the back part of this group real quick, Verlander, Rodon, who we talked about already, Zach Wheeler, and Julio Urias. Urias has some pretty surprisingly poor projections uh, in in pretty much all the projection systems. Ratios that are worse than you expect, K rate's a little bit low, a bit of the Sandy problem, I guess, in that regard. You know, team context is good. I don't think we're as worried about at all, really, about how the Dodgers manage his innings. It's more of a question of physical health because of earlier career arm injuries that he dealt with. Uh, with Wheeler, lower K rate than expected. I know he had a lower stuff number in the previous run of the model than I would have expected for you know what I see when I watch him, but I'm not a scout. It's just an observation. He improved. The The model uh, liked him a little better after, uh, after we looked at him, and I think that's interesting because uh, for him separating... Uh, the fastballs and the breaking balls into different models might uh, might might be pretty meaningful. Um, he has a pretty he's a really good fastball, and uh, you know stuff plus said ninety eight uh, on the fastball, and I I don't really believe that almost you know like is there a way that Zach Wheeler's fastball is below average? I don't think so. So the new stuff plus likes it better. Um, and he is, like I said, with Woodruff and Nola, he's one of those guys who has a large arsenal and can command them and has stuff. And that's just going to be something I always love. I have him 15 right now behind Glasnow just because Glasnow is going to strike everybody out and Wheeler might not. Um, but Wheeler is somebody I'd still be happy uh, to get, especially if I did some sort of uh, get two number twos. Um, I could go, even though I have Wheeler behind glass now, this is why you have to also think about ADPs in your draft. I have Wheeler behind glass now, but I could do a thing where in my draft, I took Wheeler and then glass now. But you have to play it that way. Cause that's the order that they're likely to go right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just with the glass now ranking, I'm trying to tell you how much I like him. Um, with Yuli Urias, I, I think there's a couple of things we shouldn't just gloss over quickly that are very interesting is that if you look at the Dodgers, uh, the batting average, they lead the league in batting average on balls and play allowed. So uh, they lead the league in BABIP allowed uh, as pitchers. Um, every, like, like if you change the, like, you, you, the sorting mechanism, right? So it's like this year or this year plus this year, last year plus this year or three years plus you know, all the way. You know what I mean? Like, no matter how far back you look collectively, they have the, they have the, the lowest BABIP allowed. So, when I say that, I'm like, okay, so for over the last 15 years, uh, Dodgers have uh, had the lowest BABIP allowed. The first thing that comes to mind is like a stadium issue, right? Sure. But that stadium doesn't really play super pitcher friendly. And I don't, you know, it has been a couple different regimes. You can't just be like, oh, it's all Friedman. But they have gone from being like, hey, leading the league at 285 to over the last couple of years, the uh, the BABIP allowed uh, by the Dodgers. Let me see here if I can do this. Team stats, last two years, BABIP allowed two fifty eight, dude. Like that's that's not just a stadium 
And look who's at the bottom. It's the Dodgers, the Astros, the Yankees, the Brewers, the Guardians, and the Rays. Could you put together a more analytic-focused group? No, not really. The question is, with the new rules, we still assume that these teams are going to probably lead the way with the new shift rules, right? Even though you can't right. play the defenders the same way, Brilliant. you can still like, play them somewhere. You even though choose. we've identified this thing and we think it's a shift, what about going forward? Yeah, does it does it just mean that their advantage compared to the field is smaller than it was, even though they're still going to be among the best in the league at positioning defenders? Yeah, are they going to have like a 280 instead of a 260, basically? But if everyone's going up, right? If balls in play are going to be rewarded across the board more, or at least everywhere, you're going to, you're going to see more balls in play and turn into hits. Are they still going to have a comparative advantage based on how they play? I tend to err on the side of believing they will. Oh, they will. But then if you go back to the, the, the specific players, uh, Urias has BABIPs over the last few years, 257, 256, 272, 229. 229, jeez. You know, 229, right. And I had, I had uh, you know, a lively discussion with someone online about how that is, that's player-based. And I, I have a more, that, that's Urias and not the Dodgers. And I was saying there's got to be a Dodgers effect too. Uh, because, you know, a 258 team BABIP and you've got Urias, are you going to give Urias, Gonsolin, and Kershaw all all of that? Are you going to just be like, those three guys are just amazing at suppressing results and balls in play, and it's not a team thing? I'm not going to do that because they've, they've only thrown about 35% of the innings for the team, you know, over the last two years. And we still got a 258 BABIP here to consider. So I think there's a team effect and, and separately there's a player effect. Of course, it meshes together, right? The team prepares a defense for the player. So there is a meshing of like, we think this player has the ability to produce balls in play. And we, and we, when we've done, we've made a plan that was with them. Now there are a bunch of analysts out there that think very stridently that there's nothing a player can do about balls in play. I obviously don't fully agree with them. And the reason that I say obviously is the stuff plus model is trained on on RA9 it's tr it's tr it's trained on all results so just by deciding to train my model against all results as opposed to training it just against whiffs um I've I've made a choice that yes some of these guys can suppress uh balls in play and I think Urias's big old curveball is really hard to hit you know what I mean mm -hmm. like I do think that's part of it is that Julio Urias has a great sweeping curveball that is super hard to hit. I am obviously also stalling to get you some actual numbers on it. But here we go. Uh, the curveball for his career, he's thrown 2,700 curveballs. People are hitting 197 with the 133 slugging against, a uh, 133 ISO against it. So they know this thing is coming. They're trying to hit it and they can't. So, you know, Urias's curveball, and this isn't, that's, that's a curveball that's changed a couple of times. Uh, this last year, uh, very similar numbers, 203 average, same deal. Um, so I, I do that, but, but do I believe that he's going to have a 229 uh, BABIP again? You know, and the projections that you referenced that aren't that great have 290 BABIP from Steamer and a 403 ERA. The bat seems to more willing to believe the BABIP allowed and has a 267 BABIP for him and a 364 ERA. So I'm already leaning closer to the bat and I'm saying it could be even lower than that. So 
Also, the bat's strike projected strikeout rate is low for me. So if you take the bat and you give him a strikeout per inning, then I believe him, and that's going to be like a three-three ERA, I think. Uh, so Urias is someone I totally believe in, and uh, if I had to do uh, something where I didn't even get the Glasnow Wheeler connection, or if I did do Glasnow Wheeler, I would love to take Urias or Gallon uh, to to make it a threesome. All right, so three be looking at three pitchers probably in about the first six rounds based on where those guys all go. Uh, but none of those guys going in the first two rounds. You'd have a couple really good hitters up there, three starters, maybe even your first closer all sprinkled in there. All, all possible. It'd be an interesting start, but I think I could do that. If I got two really stud hitters that both hit for uh, average and, and hit homers and hit and, and got steals, I could come out of the first couple of rounds with, you know, 40 homers, 50 homers, and, and, and 40 steals and a, a 280 average. Then I feel like I could get four pitchers in a row especially because I'd be making up for the fact that I didn't get a Woodruff or a Burns or Cole by Glasnow, Wheeler, Gallon, Glasnow, Wheeler, Urias. I'm, I'm into that. I think the last pitcher to talk about from this group, and this will be a longer episode because it's pitcher week. Why wouldn't it be? Justin Verlander, coming off Tommy John, comes back, fires 175 innings of 175 ERA and .83 whip, just over a strikeout per inning. And comes back and gets a two-year deal with the Mets. He'll turn 40 in the second half of February. I feel like his age is basically the only argument against him. I mean, the workload coming off Tommy John was as much as you can ask for. He reeled off four straight 200-inning seasons before getting hurt. And yeah, maybe you're not getting the 300 strikeout ceiling that he had in 18 and 19, but he's still really damn good. And if I'm getting him around pick 45, pick 50, I am very happy to take him there. I'm taking Verlander over Rodon. I'm taking Verlander over Wheeler. I'm taking Verlander over Arias too, because I just think there's a better pitcher there. That's that's what I have. That's how I have it. I have Verlander 12, but um, should I have Verlander ahead of Scherzer? There's certainly a case for it. Those Those two guys on the same team again, Pushing each other as old men. Like I hope someday, if if they ever you know remake Grumpy Old Men, I hope it's Scherzer, Scherzer and Verlander <laughs> playing, <laughs> playing just ice fishing together and just just absolutely just pure hatred for each other. Trying to just trying to demolish the other one at tiddlywinks, just like cribbage, or cribbage at least throwing down ball. the cards, playing cribbage and throwing down the cards in a huff. Awesome. Yeah, that's what I want to see someday. <laughs> I, I'm just from our conversation about Scherzer, just looking at these, like, I don't know, man. I, with ADP, I guess like maybe I should keep Verlander behind Scherzer. Um, but I don't know. I think I could take Verlander over Scherzer. He just, he, had, he pitched 175 innings last year. He pitched 223 in 2019. And the rest is Tommy John. It seems like you might get more innings out of Verlander. If you're going to get more innings out of him, this stuff has the the only thing that I can say negative about Verlander is that the, the stuff has sort of declined a little bit. But it was year one coming off of Tommy John. Like he could, yeah, and it wasn't bad. It wasn't like Noah Syndergaard or anything. Like he still had an above average fastball stuff plus, and you know, with the new model, he had a 114 stuff plus. Like he belongs up here. Fastball velo was basically the same as it was before he got hurt. The fact that that didn't come down a tick. Lost a little ride on it. Little ride, okay. 
also very pitcher-friendly environment that he's going into now, too. So that even cushions things more. Yeah. Yeah, City Field is fantastic. Yes. But that doesn't differentiate him from Scherzer. Right. From Scher- I think the, comp- the, the comparison for Scherzer is just really who do you think is going to get more innings? And I think I would guess Verlander. Yeah, I like how I'm talking myself into moving Verlander up even higher or flipping him with Scherzer or moving Scherzer down and having them right Who'd next to each other. Who would you rather have, Gossman, Scherzer, or Verlander? Or order those three. I go Scherzer, Verlander, Gossman entering the pod, God. and now it's like Scherzer Verlander, versus Verlander, Scherzer. and then Gossman, regardless of order for the first two. Yeah. <laughs> a 40-year-old who just had a, a great season coming off Tommy John surgery, and it's like, ah, maybe we got to move this guy up. That is yeah. unreal. I mean, we just we just referenced the Tommy John honeymoon for Tyler Glass now, then we should have it for Verlander, Verlander too. I think Plus, so. Plus, Verlander was, it seemed like better health. I mean, what was the last surgery he had before Tommy John? It was like the core surgery he had in, in Detroit in like 2014 or something, 2015? A while ago. So, yeah, I mean, the whatever the highest grade for health that you can give a 40-year-old who had Tommy John surgery. I mean, whatever that Zimmerman's number is. number is not good. Zimmerman's is 98th percentile, but I think it's got to be better than that. Yeah, maybe that's the error in my own ways. Let's move on to the next cluster. This is basically the pick 60 to pick 80 guys. Shane Bieber, Luis Castillo, Kevin Gossman goes in this range. Alec Manoa, Christian Javier, who you mentioned a bit earlier, Zach Gallen, and Max Freed all go here. There's not much that separates this group from the group that comes behind them either. So we're, again, we're just kind of putting them into smaller groups to make it a little easier to break them down. So Bieber, a pain point for you a year ago, or a pain point for the model at least, uh, maybe both, but where do we go from here? Like, do you do you double down? Do you say, no, I, I was right. <laughs> the, the outcome was wrong. I'm going to go, I'm going to go and, and stay away from Bieber again, because at least he looks like he's kind of got back into that borderline workhorse sort of level that made him partially was what made him so good to begin with. Yes. Uh, however, if you want some red, it's the worst uh, stuff. Plus, you know, in my top 26 or top 25, top 26, actually my worst stuff. Plus, uh, you have to go. It's like my worst stuff. Plus in the top 50, I have to go down to like Joe Ryan to get worse. Um, so I'm not, uh, I did use ADP and the bat projections to keep them higher up, you know? So there was a point at which I could not even despite my model, look away and pick somebody else. And that for me was around 25 among starting pitchers. I'm still not going to end up with him because he's, you know, goes among, he goes 15th, but um, it does, it, it does kind of is instructive for like, how I'm trying to rank these guys. I got a $17 projection from him. Um, the highest you could push him is with that is about uh, 16th. So even by projections who don't, the, who right now don't care about stuff plus and are going to get better. Um, you're going to get, they're going to get better results for Shane Bieber. Even projections say you're kind of taking them pretty aggressively at 15. Yeah. I- I'm kind of on the same side here because we spend so much time looking at the player pool together and talking through these issues. The model is a big part of how I want to rank players and look at the projections the same as everyone else and trying to just fit pieces right. I think Urias versus Bieber is kind of a toss-up 
I think that's where ADP has them too, because Urias is the end of the last group. Bieber's the beginning of this group. I'd prefer Urias's skills by a reasonable margin. Not a landslide, but if I'm if I'm there with that choice, I'm not really thinking twice about it and choosing and his, Urias. And Urias's fastball did get a little bit worse last year and it was below average, but I mean you could you could look away from the R model and just look at, at the bad projections, who Urias uh, has better projections uh, than Shane Bieber by, uh, you know, like 50 cents. Um, and Luis Castillo, who goes right behind Bieber, has a better projection from the bat by $6. Uh, Kevin Gossman has a better projection by 50 cents. Uh, so, you know, there are players. And then Christian Javier uh, has a very similar projection, but my model loves him much more. So... You know, that, uh, let me look at Gallon. Gallon, similar, but my model loves him more. So, you know, either the Pitching Plus model loves guys right behind him more or 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 projections love him more or both. And so he's, I'm just not going to go, even at that ADP, Urias, Castillo, and Gossman, and Javier are ahead of him. Gossman is someone you've got a bit ahead of the market. I think you had him at 11 in your rankings just by I order. just moved him down to 12 because of our conversation on Verlander and Scherzer. Oh, man, that's a slight, <laughs> slight bump. But ADP has yeah. about 17th among starting pitchers as of right now. So he he would be trending more into the, the guys you're likely to get category. The issue I guess I had was the ratios last year were surprisingly bloated. The whip in particular, a 124 whip. That's easily the worst that we saw from anybody going among the top 25 pitchers coming off the board. Uh, so what went wrong? Was it bad luck? And how, you must think in some way this is correctable. So I guess what's your case for for Gossman to belong closer to that elite group where he's kind of a, you waited, but he's your SP1 as opposed to he's a clear SP2, which is where a lot of people seem to see him. I mean, I'm just looking at a 363 BABIP allowed for him. Uh, that seems pretty aggressive, no matter what you think of the defense behind him and the fact that maybe he's more of a two-pitch pitcher or two-and-a-half-pitch pitcher. I mean, really, last year he started to throw the slider more. Does that is that that lead to more of a high BABIP because the slider is not as good? Uh, it was the most he'd ever thrown his slider, I guess. Um, but at the same time, what do you want? You, you, you keep telling him he's a two pitch pitcher and needs his third pitch. He, he threw the third pitch more. Um, I would just say, even if you think he has a true talent ability to allow hard contact, cause he has a three fourteen career BABIP three sixty three is aggressive. That's a lot. So I'm just expecting that BABIP to come down. And, uh, for the most part, the projections really like him and they like him better than the starting, uh, a, a, a number two starting pitcher. I guess for me, my my skepticism comes from, even though the velocity on the four-seamer is good, 95 miles an hour last year, the league hit 333 and slugged 483 against Gossman's four-seamer last year. That's the part that's really holding me back from, there's going to be good correction, good regression on the BABIP, almost certainly. That's a ridiculous BABIP for a guy with these skills. But I think I'm not pushing him as far back as some folks would, unless we believe that four-seamer will be more effective. Yeah, and it's fair because uh, he seems to go in uh, up and down cycles based on that four-seamer. There's a lot of pressure on that four-seamer, right? Because the splitter is not a pitch that you can command that well, as our friend Nick Pollock uh, just talks about. We should uh, give some love to uh, Pitcherpalooza uh, coming up this weekend, <laughs> put on by Pitcher List. We'll both be involved on, on Friday. Um, 
and uh, he's not a big fan of the splitter because he doesn't think you can command it. And I think even just doing the mechanics of it, I think you can see how it might be a really tough hard pitch to command. So that's part of why he's throwing the slider more is a pitch he can throw in the zone, he can put in the zone, and 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 if they're sitting on, uh, sitting in the zone or or just not swinging on anything low, then he can use the slider to throw it in the zone and command it well. So I I think he's come up with some mitigation strategies. And yet, at the same time, uh, there's so much pressure on that four-seamer because that's what makes everything go. And we've seen, you know, over time, there's been times when the four-seamer loses some ride. And I remember, uh, you know, I wrote a, a piece about whether or not two pitches is enough. And if, if Gossman is showing us that two pitches is enough um, for the Athletic uh, last year with the, with the Giants, no, two years ago with the Giants, um, and, uh, one thing that we focused when I focused on that was just, uh, how important the vertical movement was, uh, for him. And at the time, uh, he, it was down a little bit, but with the blue Jays, you know, his vertical ride is, is up. It looks, it looks like it's in good shape. And, um, I think the, the, the four seamers, uh, is good to go, especially because the velo is there. So I'm thinking it's mostly going to be regression in terms of what happens with balls in play for Kevin Gossman. Interesting. So the guy that I like kind of at market in this group is Luis Castillo. After the delayed start last season, I think just getting out of Great American Ballpark, the home run park factors difference alone, taking a guy with those skills, putting him into T-Mobile Park instead of Great American Ballpark for a season, that was a a big boost to his baseline. I love Castillo. I, I was really encouraged by 150 innings after he came off the IL, so we didn't really see um, any lingering effects of that that arm injury that he was dealing with. I still think he's really solid as like a top 15 starting pitcher. I think if I were drafting as my first starter, I'm getting my second and my third reasonably quickly just to make sure that I'm I'm set though for for ratios and for Ks. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of upside uh within uh considering that uh he his strikeout rate went from 25.8% uh with Cincinnati to 28.9 uh with Seattle. Um, this, you know, all of the results uh, were really excellent. Um, and uh, he goes from a tough park to a, a to a nice park, and we're gonna see more benefits of that as he sort of meshes his approach. Luis Castillo does to his new ballpark. Part of that we've already seen. I think he threw the changeup uh, less and less with the with Seattle as time went on, and threw the slider more. Um, and so you know, it's becoming more of a four seam slider. Um, you know, uh, heavy approach. And uh, I think we saw some slight changes in, in, in velo and movement. Uh, the slider got harder uh, when he was with Seattle and, uh, and uh, he got harder and had more drop. So that's a pretty good combo. That's, that's basically what you want out of your slider. So Luis Castillo has his projections based on what he's done. And then I think a little bit of a tiny up arrow uh, based on new coaching with Seattle, new ballpark, uh, slight changes in his arsenal that uh, that were good. So I, I, I'm all systems go on Luis Castillo, yeah. Lowest walk rate since 2018. Uh, we saw a lower ground ball rate too, probably in part because you don't have to try and get as many ground balls when you're not in Cincinnati. You can do different things. Fly balls aren't going to hurt you as much. So I do think there was probably some... More sliders, more whiffs, yeah. More conscious changes there that led to that shift in profile. And this is going to work just fine for him with that being his new home ballpark. Uh, One of the more perplexing guys from a projections perspective, Alec Manoa. 
Uh, this is a pitcher that people generally really like. The ratios last year were outstanding. A 224 ERA, a .99 whip in 196 and two-thirds innings. Only, air quotes, only 180 Ks. So that's a tick low. <sighs> what do we do with Manoa, a guy that a Steamer had up over four for the ratios projection for the ERA? The bat has him down at 373 with a 117 whip, which is totally fine as an SP2, but... Probably a pretty far cry from what people were expecting, given the way his big league career has started. Yeah, and the bat is mostly giving him those better projections based on a 266 BABIP after being 246 his first year and 244 his second year. So uh, you can see that the home runs are projected to go up, um, and he's supposed to get a little bit less luck on on balls in play going forward. And the, the steamer has a 286 BABIP, and that's why that's mostly why it's. It's up over four for the ERA for Alec Manoa. I don't know, man. My model uh, had 103 stuff, 99 location, 101 pitching plus. And then when we reran the model, 101 stuff plus, 99 location, 100. It just keeps spitting out slightly above average starter, uh, which is a little perplexing because Manoa has been better than that. Um, but that explains when you have the projections and the model kind of you know, shaking hands, it's really hard to push him up high. So I have him, Manoa is in my uh, trio of shame. <laughs> uh, it goes Manoa, Bieber, Freed for me at 24, 25, 26, where it's just like, uh, maybe I'm just going to be wrong, but, you know, I'm looking at projections, I'm looking at uh, my model, and both projections and the model don't like uh, those three pitchers as much as the pitchers that uh, around them. Since you mentioned Freed being part of that group, what do you think it is about Freed that kind of shoves him down in this range? It's a it, it's a poor fastball. Um, it's not it's not it's not a, a fastball that rates well, but he does well with it. And I don't know what the secret is. Um, player, let me look at the by pitch. I don't like. What would it be missing? I, he he's fairly normal. Like he throws a big old curveball. Uh, you know the the fastballs aren't amazing. Uh, you know the slider was a kind of a an addition. Maybe what if we're wrong on the changeup? There's a 400. He threw 400 changeups last year. It says 99 stuff plus 103 location 105. It says it's an above average changeup, but not like a real weapon. And the model is not amazing at changeups. So let's say his changeup was much better. He'd still kind of be a guy with a big curveball, a, a really good changeup, and then not great fastballs. And that's not someone that I want to put in my top 15, top 20, because it's just um, he's somebody who's going to age earlier. That's why age becomes a, a, a consideration with this. It's just going to age earlier because his fastball is not as good. And I think that's part of why we heard uh, some rumors uh, that he might be traded. It's not that he's not great right now. It's just that they don't want to extend him. You know, they've extended everybody. They extended Spencer Strider. You know, they could have extended uh, Max Fried. So the marketplace is telling us a little something. Uh, more evidence says fastballs, forcing fastballs is not good. It has four inches less ride uh, than pitches at, at the similar velocity. 94 miles an hour is no longer above average velocity, really. Even for starters, 93.5 is now average. So he's basically got average velo and below average ride. And the sinker has four inches less uh, sort of arm side fade. 
uh, than most sinkers. So neither one of his fastballs has good movement. I think he commands it all right, and he has a real bulldog mentality on the mound, um, and that's that's part of it. Maybe there's some deception I'm, we're not capturing about how he shows the ball, and maybe the changeup is better uh, than my model has it. Um, but uh, in some, I don't see something there where I'm like, oh, that that's where we must be wrong, and yeah, and the and the projections say you know good but not great as well. Yeah, I know it can be slippery to look at the results on an individual pitch for one season, especially when that pitch is thrown you know 400 times like that changeup. But as far as average slugging against, and even whiff percentage, the savant whiff percentage, the changeup was just about as effective as the curveball for Freed last year. So if that continues, that could be one of the ways he continues to sort of uh, exceed expectations. 218 slugging on the changeup. I mean, that that could be where the model's missing. But it's, you know, 375 slugging on the four seam. I don't think it's missing on that. I think it's not a great pitch. But this is more the ingredients for a, like another future. You've used Hunjin Ryu as someone with the deep arsenal that finds a mm-hmm. way to make it work, and he doesn't have quite the same injury woes that Ryu has had over the course of his career, too. So... But Ryu also didn't get ace money, you know? No, and like no, he Freed, didn't. Freed may be, you know, headed towards ace money, uh, depending on who signs it. Freed's older than you think. Or Shane Bieber's younger than you think. Bieber turns 28 in May. Freed's already 29, which you just, if, how old's Max Freed? I would have said 26, 27. It would have been off the top of my big, head where I was at. Injuries. Did he have some injuries in the minors? Yep. Uh, he was, he had Tommy He's John. He's been in the big leagues since 2017. He's been around a little longer than you think. Little delayed because of an injury in the minors. It feels like we're we're piling on a guy that isn't. He's not bad. There's nothing wrong with him, but you have to make choices with these ranges. ERA with 117 WHIP and 632 innings. I would just have to say that, like you know, he really has three full seasons on his resume, and one was mediocre, and the other two were great. It doesn't. I don't think that's enough to like throw away projections and throw away models. No, uh, I don't think so either. How about Zach Gallen, where everything except for 2021 has been really good? Under a three ERA when he debuted in 19 in the shortened 2020 season and over a full season in 2022. 254 ERA last season, career best .91 whip, uh, lower strikeout rate, 192 Ks and 184 innings. We've always liked him because he seemed like a guy that would do better with his walk rate. That finally was borne out over a season in 2022, right? It was a guy that had good command and yet walked more guys than he should have. Far, far from like an overpowering arsenal. That's always been Gallon. It's been a little more of like pitch mix and finesse than guy that was going to come in and, and blow you away. But the velocity was up a little bit last year on the fastball too. So uh, how does Gallon fit into this conversation and what kind of keeps him maybe a notch above Freed for you? He's a, a baby Woodruff for me. I mean, the the four seam has really good shape and uh, and... You know, with that added velo and the added location, um, it's just a, it, you know, it profiles out to his best pitch, the mm-hmm. four seam. I kind of like that. Um, you know, so maybe freed secondaries are, are better uh, in terms of uh, in terms of stuff, but where Gallon uh, really steps forward is then locating those secondaries. Uh, so his four seamer is 94-1, comparable uh to uh to freed's uh however it has five inches more dr- uh, ride than than freed's uh compared to to the population as a, as a whole so really good four seamer and then really good location he locates the four seam the cutter the slider 
the changeup and the knuckle curve all really well. Not talking like 101 or something, like 108, 110, 122 on the slider. He didn't even throw the slider that much if he, if he, you know, if he figures out that cutter slider situation there and has two pitches there, then you could have like legit four secondary pitches he can command really well. And then a fastball that does, that has really good shape. So, you know, I think he's kind of a baby Woodruff for me. Really good fastball, lots of pitches, good enough stuff on those pitches. It's uh, not quite uh, a spruced up Ryu. A spruced up Ryu would be, um, I think, what we're looking with with Freed a little bit. Uh, but Freed doesn't have that command of all his pitches, so that, that's 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 the that's the important part of Ryu, you know. Um, and I think Gallon has that command. There's been a little bit of like at 94-1 with the fastball. Is is it soft? Like, could that fastball fall off quickly? And I think that is possible. But uh, right now, Gallon is 27 years old. I think he's primed for his peak season. Yeah, we didn't just see his best one. Then I'm really interested to see what could be even better. It could be the K rate that actually ticks up slightly yeah. uh, over the course out. of the season too. But love to see the improvements, the consolidation of a lot of skills that were flashed at various points earlier in his career from Gallon. Last pitcher in this group, you mentioned him earlier, Christian Javier. Slightly underpriced where he's been going in early drafts. I mean, clearly no real concerns about job security going into this year, given how well he fared moving back into the rotation a year ago. Yeah, I mean, he's like a he's a baby strider in terms of he has two pitches that rate really well and then another two pitches. <laughs> um, but he's so good at the fastball slider thing that and, and he has good enough command of them that this total lack of command uh, when it comes to the changeup and the knuckle curve it's not as important. Um, it would be nice if he could command. If there is a step forward for him, is just uh, doing enough work with the knuckle curve uh, to to command it, so that if someone is finding a way to sit on uh, his four seamer slider, or you know, he could throw something that is obviously doesn't look like his four seamer slider, and that they'll probably take, and then he could throw those knuckle curves in the zone for called strikes. I think that could take his game another level. I mean, right now he's just blowing things by people. But we saw how good he can be in the postseason. Um, and uh, I think that's that's meaningful for me is that, you know, this guy went through some of the best lineups in baseball, 12 and two-thirds innings with a .71 ERA last year in the postseason. So if you add that to what he did during the regular season, you got 160 innings uh, with uh, how many strikeouts combined? If you add them in, where is that? It'd be over 200. Yep. 210 and I still have my 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 leaderboard up sorted 210 would have been eighth most in the big leagues and more than Sandy Alcantara you know what's pretty funny is that the the numbers for Javier as a starter are slightly better than his numbers as a reliever even three ERA as a starter 321 out of the pen not that much of a difference a 175, 260, 337 line against him as a starter. It's 190, 303, 336 out of the pen. So it's working just fine for him in the longer role. He's he's like there's this there's there is this new kind of like what if we just had a closer for five innings philosophy going around baseball, and that's that's I'd put Strider in that with uh, with. Uh, Christian Javier, do you think there's a lot of other guys? Maybe Hunter Green will be like that? I mean, am I wrong? It, it, maybe this is part of my the error in my ways with, with Dylan. Is Dylan Cease like that a little bit? 
Yeah. See, so says like that. Maybe that's why it's working because it, if if I if I can if I like Christian Javier, I shouldn't dislike Dylan Cease. It's more of a question of where they're drafted. Javier feels like a bargain. Cease feels like an overpay in part because the other one exists. But it's like let's take a closer. Let's take an elite closer's arsenal with at least average command and just let them start and say this is better than back end starters of the past who had four pitches and none of those pitches were good. This guy's tall and chunky, so he should he should pitch a lot of innings. I think I think that's why the uh, the location plus is meaningful for me in this, where you know Cease has a ninety seven location plus, Javier has a one hundred one, Glass now has a one hundred three, Hunter Green even has a one hundred one. So all the guys I mentioned as you know, and, and Strider is one hundred one. So all the guys I mentioned uh, as these five inning relievers, Cease has the worst location plus out of all of them. All right, one more cluster, and then we're out for day one of Pitcher Week. A group of still SP2s, as I'm calling them, they're going in the pick 80 to 100 range. This includes Joe Musgrove, Hugh Darvish, Framber Valdez, Tristan McKenzie creeping up ADP-wise this draft season, and Tyler Glass now in this group for now, as we said earlier, probably taking off ahead of them as we speak. So he's, Glass now is so good, if you have a late draft position and you're picking at the round five, round six turns. You're talking about pick 75, 76. That's your window. That's it. You you cannot wait another turn. He will not be there when it comes back. And with dollars to donuts. Mm, I love both. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we, we do what we speak. We both uh, just took Tyler Glass now in that range. We should absolutely have donuts during pitcher week. I'm going to Chuck's a little bit later. Then then they got to bring their dollars. Let me uh, let me see where I took him exactly. I took him in the sixth. Yeah, probably early six, early mid sixth. So yeah, so it's around eighty, eighty five. Is that eighty five? Five times fifteen is seventy five. So I took him at seventy six. And there's a break in starting pitching. It was, I took Glass now. Uh, someone else took Framber Valdez. Our friend Jeff Erickson was in that draft. He took Valdez. And there was a long break for the rest of round six. No other pitchers taken. Then McKenzie went at the 6-7 turn to Ryan Bloomfield. A few closers. Then we got to the guys we're going to start the next episode with. So there does seem to be a small cliff in, uh, in how the room plays. And I think most people see Glass now belonging uh, in that group. Yeah, there were only three pitchers after Glass. Now there was only three starting pitchers in the next thirty picks. So uh, he is kind of, I think, a great. You know, I think a lot of times you want to like pick somebody at the end of a tier. I think that's good. You like there's a, you think that he's slightly comparable to the other guys, and you paid less than everybody else. Glass now compares favorably to top ten pitchers. Like that's that's where his skills are at. I did mo- move Musgrove down uh, as we were talking. Uh, he, I had him, I had him like in the low twenties. I think he fits a little better after uh, my trio of shame, um, because uh, he also does not have good fastball stuff plus. And I think that's what we saw at the end of the season. You know, yeah. he, he he and he was he's responded already by doing the old pitcher trick of just throwing more uh, breaking balls. You know, I even saw him in the in in at the All Star game, and I said, "What's what's been your big adjustment that made you better?" And he said. Oh, just spinning the ball a lot more. So he's been a guy who is throwing tons and tons of sliders. And I don't know. I don't have a story for you on how the how he gets better. I only have a story for you as he gets worse. You know? And so I've pushed him now behind Manoa, Bieber, and Freed. 
Um, I think, you know, comparing him to you, Darvish is pretty tough. I actually prefer Darvish if I'm making the yeah, choice between I the two. Darvish. Clearly, my, one of my tendencies is I don't, I don't worry about guys in their late 30s. I don't. You made it this far. You're still healthy. Your velocity is still good. Your pitches are still good. You are still good. And from a ratios perspective, you know the ERA last year looks like in, in last year 2021 that 4.22 ERA that looks like kind of the worst case scenario. He was pitching hurt at the end of the season, comes right back. And had his highest innings total since 2013. So durability here again, kind of like Musgrove, Darvish, Darvish. Darvish. It's it's like that conditional. Like this is pretty good durability for a guy in his late 30s. And the home park, it's a nice place to pitch. I like that. I like that the control, which was a problem earlier in his career, that has not been a problem for him really for several years. But he's become good in that department, very good with control. And early in his career, we looked at him as a guy that had a bit of a walks problem. Yeah, I think that mostly the way he solved that walks problem was by not throwing the pitches he couldn't command so well. And so he's kind of uh, really uh, figured out, I think, his his pitch mix better. He used to throw 40% four-seam fastballs. Now he throws 20%. Um, and it says he throws 45% sliders. I think that's his cutter. It's a hard pick. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not uh, speaking ill on any anybody's <laughs> uh, pitch mix describer. You know. Uh, you know what I'm saying. Like I, I think it's a hard pitch, uh, hard mix to to kind of get right and and figure it out. But he throws 45% uh, cutters now, and I think he can actually command that pitch pretty well. And that's helped him uh, reduce the homers, I think, and reduce the walks. Uh, but it also means that he's kind of a bad fastball starter. Right, yeah, New Darvish, yeah, bad fastball starter, a little bit, yeah, yeah. So um, that may, that worries me a little bit. You getting a, a top fifteen guy in terms of raw strikeouts, I think, is a good place to start. Yeah, with you, Darvish, and you know that team is going to get better. I, I I never look at wins, but you know he had sixteen wins last year. That's a good number too. Good lineup, good bullpen. Oh, 16? Yeah, you're you're happy with sixteen wins for sure. Only Fromber, Julio Rios, Verlander, and Kyle Wright had more. Kyle Wright had 21 wins. It's crazy. Fromber Valdez, good time to bring him up. The ERA last year got under three, over 200 innings. So valuable. A 116 whip, not usually the whip you see next to a sub three ERA. A good number of strikeouts because of that volume. Skills growth here in the form of really the best walk rate that we've seen from Fromber over the course of his career. But I think with the new rules, just thinking again about the conversation a little earlier in this episode, an extreme ground baller. Is he more impacted by shift rules than the typical pitcher? I would think so. The one thing that I do like is he's a left-hander, so he's going to suppress those lefties trying to take advantage of the new shift rules. The other thing I like is the emergence of his cutter. Uh, last year, 351 cutters thrown uh, by our by the the stuff plus metric. That had a 142 stuff plus on that cutter, so that is a legitimate pitch that he's now added. He always seemed to be like a guy who had a curveball and nothing else to me, um, because uh, you know his sinker is pretty good, but I, I don't think it's uh, real a standout pitch, more of a near league average pitch. But with such a great curveball, he was kind of, I thought he was like a young Adam Wainwright in a way, you know. I know that they throw with different hands and, and they're not the same kind of pitcher, but I thought that was basically what 
uh, Framber's career is going to look like was, you know, here's here's my curveball. Everything you are thinking as a hitter is about whether or not that curveball is coming. Uh, but that cutter emerging as a real standout pitch, uh, there's a possibility you could strike more batters out next year. Um, you know, usually what you find with guys, um, like think about Luis Castillo. He could get ground balls, but now he's got the, the best slider of his career. Why wouldn't he throw that and get a whiff and just be sure of it? And if this cutter kind of continues to emerge as it has, it's going to give him the ability to get whiffs as well. Um, and so he'll have this choice about, well, do I get the ground ball or do I just take a whiff? Um, so I could see him striking out more guys. He's also just because of that curveball, you know, Wainwright is a guy who I think is undervalued year to year. We've seen him get really low contracts in the major leagues. We've seen him play really well into his uh, late of his career, Wainwright. And Valdez has a curveball that's as good as, as, as his. And so when you have something like that, you, you, it's a really important weapon. Yeah, I think the changes over time from Fromber have really sort of changed his baseline, but I've also shown that there's probably a higher ceiling there than we thought when he first broke in. I think I saw him as a back-end-of-the-rotation ground ball machine earlier in his career. I didn't think he'd reach this level where we'd actually look at him as a top 100 player and say he belonged there, but I think he does belong there. Uh, for his career, he's been very good against lefties, as you'd expect. 204, 317, 277 line. He's faced 456 lefties. Five homers allowed. That's it. So real, real good. I mean, the the setup is still strong for Framber Valdez. Last pitcher of the episode, Tristan McKenzie, a guy that you seem to like a bit less than many people in the draft room. And I could sort of sense this one coming, even going back to last year. I think in the first half, you expressed some concerns about McKenzie. He did pitch really well for a long stretch during the second half of the year. I think it's a big part of why he's holding this early ADP. So what are your concerns as you look at Tristan McKenzie? Is it durability because of the very slight frame that he has? Or is there something else still there in terms of command or the arsenal that gives you some pause? I do remember the storyline that, like, you know, he had a certain fastball and then he went to the minor leagues and he came back and the fastball was harder, but he had less command on it. Um, and he wasn't pl- pitching as well before he went down. Uh, I believe this is all in 2021. Uh, this story for Tristan McKenzie. Um, and he pitched a little better when he came back up, um, but that still makes me nervous about his fastball. That being said, I do think his curveball is on the same level as Fromber's. Um, so he does have that one real weapon that you're looking for. Uh, maybe it's not quite as good as Fromber's, but it's a it's a real weapon. Um, the four-seam fastball seems to be doing fine. The slider is below average pitch. So he's kind of a two-pitch two pitch pitcher for me uh, who's had some story in the past and then also a 92-mile-an-hour fastball is, is decidedly below average these days. I mean, that's what he went, he put up for the season last year is 92.5, 92.7. That's below average these days. So below average velocity, some durability concerns, some arsenal concerns, and that it slider rates as a below average pitch. Um, it's just enough to to push him down a tick. I'm looking now. Uh, he, I do have guys that are projected to be less than him ahead of him. I think I deserve. I, I think the listeners deserve to hear who those are a little bit real quickly. Uh, Logan Webb, um, who with the new update in the model just really popped. Um, and had better numbers in location stuff and pitching plus. 
Um, and I just see him as a baby for Amber Valdez, you know, really in a, in a great, great park. Um, Hunter Green, who, you know, is Spencer Sprider Redux, I think, is just another guy who has just unbelievable stuff on two pitches. Um, and I think he's going to blow through the league. Dustin May, who uh, similar, just great stuff, way better stuff than results in his small stint last year. Now he's fully healthy, got another year. Uh, Logan Gilbert and Nick Lodolo. Um, I suppose I could move McKenzie ahead of Gilbert. And Lodolo has uh, bigger health concerns than McKenzie. So maybe that uh, change is being happening on air. But otherwise, I feel pretty good about where I have him. He's a top 40 pitcher, uh, has some concerns. Um, uh, the guys who are top 30 pitchers, I think of as much more locks for a lot of innings and quality innings. Yeah, yeah, I think those are all valid concerns with McKenzie. One thing that surprises me is that he fared better the third time through the order than I would have expected with that arsenal. You know, the home runs were a problem for him kind of consistently. That was his skills downside. Uh, but if you told me McKenzie's going to slide two rounds off his ADP, I have no problem drafting him there. I think it's more about liking other players, non-starting pitchers that go in this range. Sometimes where McKenzie's going, around pick 85, pick 90 by ADP, that's where the last closers I trust are going. And if I don't have a closer yet, because I did some other stuff earlier, that's where I'm just swooping in and, and addressing my need for some saves. Or if I'm light on speed, there's a nice cluster of players that should still be everyday guys that are pretty easily you know, 25, 30 steals candidates. I might be chasing steals in that spot. So it's usually just a function of how my roster's coming together that pushes me away from McKenzie more than where he's going itself. That's a good point. Uh, I, I'm not that big of a believer in Ryan Presley. And if, if you, like me, are a little bit worried about the knees and the velo and the age um, and you put him in the second tier, that means the first tier is pretty small this year for, mm -hmm. for relievers. And you may want to get Jordan Romano as one of the last uh, starting pitchers in the first tier, uh, last relief closers in the, in the first tier. And if you want Jordan Romano... Yeah, he's going to go right around where McKenzie goes, right? Yeah, and Romano might even go a little earlier than that, but that's the type of decision that you might have to make. Romano, yeah. pick 55, Presley. so about two rounds earlier. It's, it's more like Helsley, Jansen, even Rysel Iglesias is usually gone by then, but you're kind of looking at the, Helsley and Jansen could be your your true like last chance. Like, ah, uh, these guys have a really good And if good you want to stay out of last chance, you took Romano earlier, You could that could mean you take McKenzie when other people are taking their first closer. Could be. That's one thing I found that when I when I auto drafted Diaz in the second, the one thing that was that was that was fun was that like when other people were like panicking about closers, I was just like, I'm free. You were gobbling up value <laughs> everywhere else. Yeah, I am totally free of that concern for a while. No, I I understand that does uh, make you a bit more comfortable in that range. That's gonna do it for the first episode of Pitcher Week. Three more to come this week, so be sure to wow. We like got through the top thirty, basically. I knew it was gonna take a full episode. It actually took like one <laughs> and a half by time because you know it's what we do. We talk a little too much. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. If you got a question for a future episode, hit the like button. If you're watching us on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. And if you're enjoying the podcast, take a moment to leave us a nice rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really appreciate. If you do that, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, $2 a month for the first year gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.